You know, there's been some threats to self-storage as a business. Like, you know, some of the, what's it called? The pack rat thing where they come out and they pack your stuff and they put it in storage and they have a, maybe a kiosk where you can get your stuff out through automation, conveyor belts, etc. And, you know, it's hard to say what the future of self-storage is, but I can say that right now, you know, I can take you to Nashville and show you why it's completely overbuilt, but I can take you to Belmont or Bellevue south of Nashville and show you why it's actually undersupplied. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is the one and only Paul Moore of Wellings Capital. And today we're talking about self-storage real estate investing, and we get a little more broad as well into how to break into any asset class of commercial real estate because Paul's been in the real estate world for quite a while now. He's invested in a few different asset classes, even though we are focusing on self-storage today. He's really built the meta skills and the knowledge of how to successfully get into a new type of real estate or a type of real estate that is new to you. So we talk about that as well. Self-storage, I think, is a very promising asset class. There, I think there still is opportunity in the market. And we talk about Paul's thoughts of the future of self-storage investing as well, and so much more. So great interview. It's always great to talk with Paul. He's been on the show before, way back at the beginning of the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, a few years ago now, before anybody thought a worldwide pandemic could happen. And then here we are today. And it's a great conversation, as always, with Paul Moore of Wellings Capital. Great conversation. If you're interested in self-storage investing, keep tuning in, keep listening. You're going to learn so much from Paul Moore. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment buildings and self-storage syndications. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call with me. I will look forward to speaking with you then. If you're an Apple Podcasts user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much, you guys, and I really do mean it. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. People see your review and they think, hey, this person learned something. Maybe I can learn something too. And you know what, you guys? I see your reviews and I genuinely appreciate it. That gives me, as I say every time, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, do look us up, the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're talking about escaping the Wall Street casino and investing in real estate. Once again, our guest today is Paul Moore of Wellings Capital. It's great having him back on the show. He's very knowledgeable, and you're going to learn a lot. Without any further ado, here we go. Paul, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here, Taylor. I am really honored to be on the show again. Hey, it's great to talk with you again. You know, I feel like we uh, catch up with uh, one another every uh, year to a couple of years or so, and you've been on the show before, right at the beginning of the Passive Wealth Strategy show. So I certainly appreciate that. For our listeners out there who don't know, somehow don't know about you and your business, can you tell us about your background and, you know, a bit about Wellings Capital? 
Yeah, uh, I sold my company to a public firm in 97 and I was lost for a couple of years, moved to Virginia and uh, didn't know what to do. Started flipping houses, then started flipping waterfront lots at Smith Mountain Lake, did a small subdivision or two and ended up, uh, you know, over the years doing like all this residential, but I wasn't sure how to get involved in commercial real estate. Finally built a multifamily, which was a quasi hotel in North Dakota for the oil boom in 2011. And uh, basically decided I loved multifamily, got some uh, actual mentoring and coaching along the way, ended up writing a book on multifamily investing. And uh, since then have expanded to add self-storage and mobile home parks through our uh, syndicated funds. So that's what we do. Awesome. And you know, you recently wrote a book about self-storage. And I find the the pivot very interesting because from my perspective, you identified the the attractiveness of self-storage and mobile home parks as a general investment asset class pretty well before kind of the rest of the market, you know, got hip to uh, the, those businesses as a, as an investment. Yeah. You know, I wish I would have done it a long time ago. <laughs> Sam Zell, you know, America's most successful real estate investor with 158,000 mobile home park pads was onto this, you know, decades ago while we were all turning our nose up at mobile home parks. I mean, my my mama said, don't go to the trailer park. And I thought that meant I shouldn't invest there 30 or 40 years later, but I really should have listened to my heart and looked closer at mobile home parks years ago and self-storage. I actually looked at self-storage in 1998 when I had a bad experience at one. And I thought, man, I, I should buy one of these. And then I just let it go because I thought, you know, I'm a little worried that somebody else with a bigger, better mousetrap could build their storage down the street. And that's still the number one risk in self-storage today. So I was right about that, but I was wrong about the uh, viability of the business. It is truly uh, a unique and wonderful business. So that risk, identifying that risk, especially you know before you'd even gotten involved in the business is, is very important. And, and I think it's important to talk about the risks, generally speaking, of these these asset classes that everybody gets so excited about. I mean, I'm excited about self storage too. I love self storage, but we're not being honest if we if we kind of imply that there are no risks. And I'd love if we could kind of dig into any of those other ones. I mean, the ease of adding new supply, uh, getting potential competitors is a big one. But are there any other risks in the asset class of self storage that you know stick out to you or, or you know come to mind that you get concerned yeah. about when looking at a, a deal? Yeah, the biggest risk, of course, is during lease up. So when you have a brand new facility, or if you just did a big addition, or you're taking over a you know half vacant self storage facility, it's especially risky if a national competitor builds down the street. And we had this happen once. We invested in Florida in 2018 in a deal, and two large national competitors popped up nearby. Now, that does tell you something. It tells you that the demand was strong and the area was growing. But uh, yeah, it was a painful slog to get fully occupied, I think probably for all three facilities, but they were in a position to under, you know, outmarket us outman us and underprice us. And so it took a while, but we eventually after 3.3 years, I just happened to know that because we just <laughs> finished it out. We sold the property and uh, the investors as a whole made uh, 80% 
profit in about yeah. three and a half years on this investment. So it turned out okay. Nice. That's good. Well, it's a, the the cash flow allows you to to float along, you know, during the tough times. But that's a, a big question, especially during lease up. Is are you going to be earning enough to to make your debt payments and yeah. hold on to the property? Right. Yeah. And that was a tough one, but. Uh, you know, the the risk, you know, also is that, you know, you you locate in a wrong location and that's easy to should be easy to fix with a little due diligence using tools like Radius Plus, checking the vehicle count per day, you know, the daily vehicle count. I mean, checking the, you know, the visibility and the signage ability that you have and checking the income levels for the area. Those are the big four that you should do. You can do you know, all four of those within minutes of finding a self-storage facility. And uh, if those don't all check out well, you know, probably ought to run away. I mean, I guess what could happen is if you're really not thinking through it, you could uh, locate, you know, have a long-term play in an area that's declining in population. You know, there's a big move to the Sun Belt and Southern states. And so, you know, areas that are declining in population would not be a place I'd want to be either. I'd think that would be a big risk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I I wonder, or I think people wonder about rather, uh, about self-storage in particular is, you know, you say that people always say the millennials are killing XYZ industry, the millennials don't want stuff, the millennials, millennials, so on and so forth. And, you know, have you found that self-storage is, you know, resilient to maybe some of these generational si- shifts that people have preconceived notions about? And you know how how you build a you know a case for self storage when there are questions around you know shifts in in industries and consumption habits generally. Yeah. So self storage, there's about fifty three thousand facilities in the U S. That's about the same as Subway, Starbucks, and McDonald's combined. But about three out of every four are run by independent operators, and two out of every three of those independents are mom and pops defined as you know, someone with only one facility. Now, these folks typically don't have the resources or the knowledge or the desire to increase income, to make the upgrades, and to maximize value. Well, they don't need to because cap rates have shrunk to a level where they've doubled the value of their facility, even if they've stayed right where they are in operations and rent collections. So, The cool thing is a lot of these facilities have a lot of upside. I call it intrinsic value extraction, which is another word for value adds. You know, there's a lot of stuff you can do as a great operator to move in and and make, you know, great income increases and great equity increases for your investors. One of the things I love best to answer your question is they're very uh, price inelastic. Think about it. If I'm renting an apartment from you in Richmond for $1,000 a month and you increase my rent by 6%, then I might move out rather than pay the extra 60 a month locked in for $720 a year. But if I'm renting a storage unit from you month to month for $100 and you raise the rent 6%, I might get irritated but it's gonna hit my credit card, six extra bucks next month isn't gonna kill me. And it's way easier to pay the six bucks than to get a U-Haul, get my friends together, spend a weekend moving my (laughs) junk treasures, excuse me, uh, down the street just to save six bucks a month, especially when they can raise their rates next month too. And so self-storage is quite resilient. 
to uh, rent increases. And that's why I say the worst, the riskiest time is during lease up. And so we found that all, you know, age ranges and demographics are jumping into, you know, needing self-storage. And I could go through examples of that, but suffice it to say that it has been just a, a great ride. Actually, uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Green Street have all reported in the last four months how self-storage has been the big commercial real estate winner since COVID. And one of the reasons, Taylor, is there was no eviction moratorium. And another reason, I mean, because there's nobody living in these units, in theory. And uh, <laughs> the other reason is, you know, there's been a lot of the four Ds. They're all unfortunate. You know, these are unfortunate situations, but, you know, death, dislocation, downsizing, and divorce, you know, most of those are un unfortunate. Dislocation can be actually positive. But I mean, when people are moving from New York City or Chicago or LA to places like Richmond, Charlotte, Florida, Utah, Texas, you know, they're often using self-storage along the way. And so uh, when offices are downsizing, you know, office space is on the decline right now, as we all know, and that can cause uh, a need for self-storage. When a restaurant or bar closes, that can cause a need uh, or a desire for self-storage. So lots of good things happening in this business right now. Nice. Now, uh, to not to backtrack too hard, but one topic in particular that I've really wondered about in this space is that mom and pop owners, and, and that was historically and, and still is a, a huge portion of the, the assets out there are owned by mom and pops. But you know, we see consolidation in, in many industries, particularly in uh, rental housing, we see you know consolidation apartments and so on and so forth. And I do wonder at, at a certain point, you know, the consolidation can only go so far with the mom and pop self-storage facilities. And it seems like we still have a ways to go till that happens. But I just wonder what your thoughts are about that and that kind of shift in the, the sophistication of, of the ownership in the self-storage industry. Yeah. Well, like I mentioned, a lot of the mom and pops are just happy having these, as they call them, big metal boxes that spit out cash. <laughs> and as long as they view them that way, we're happy because they're basically looking at it as a semi-passive investment rather than something to be actively managed. I mean, when I heard value add in self-storage, I think I laughed because I'm, mean, what are we talking about here? Four pieces of sheet metal, rivets, a floor, a door. What, what are you going to upgrade? I mean, you're going to sweep it out. <laughs> Where are the value adds? But there are lots of value adds. I mean, you can add U-Haul and add maybe $3,000 a month, for example, to your net operating income. $36,000 a year at a six cap, that's $600,000 in value right there. Uh, you can add showroom items like locks, boxes, tape, scissors, upsells on units, all kinds of things you can do. You can add boat and RV storage to that five acres sitting on the side that the self-storage owner just threw in with the deal. And there's lots of great opportunities and these value adds can add up to uh, almost unbelievable profits at this point. And uh, especially if you've got, you know, a sound operator, great technology, great team, and the ability to upgrade these facilities in a time effective manner. 
it kind of seems like what you're maybe some of the implication uh, you're making there, if I'm maybe I'm reading into it too much, you let me know, is that a lot of these mom and pops aren't aren't doing those value ads. They're they're not adding sophistication to their business systems. They're not necessarily getting U-Haul in place or or keeping their rents up with market or or anything like that. Is that what you're you're seeing in the space? And there's still plenty of opportunity for for more sophisticated operators. Oh, absolutely. One thing I didn't do a good job of in my book, I think, is really taking into account fully automated facilities. In the book, I talked about, you know, how U-Haul and showroom items and a lot of the upsells and things, you couldn't get that without an employee. At the same time, some of these smaller facilities, maybe a 20 or 30,000 square foot, two or 300 unit facility might benefit from the automation that now allows you with just an iPhone or any smartphone to rent a unit, to get in and out of the gate with a code, and to even sometimes acquire some of these showroom items. And so, honestly, I think that automation can sometimes really help a mom-and-pop facility. I know one operator who has one lady sitting at a desk with 12 large computer screens around her and she's monitoring all 12 (laughs) facilities that he owns and she's actually interacting with clients she's watching the security cameras she's you know one twelfth of an employee per facility now pretty cool wow wow that's a big value add so you've been involved with a a few different types of real estate in your you know real estate investing career as you detailed for us earlier and Obviously, uh, I think you you know how to get into different asset classes and how to make a how to pivot your business effectively rather than what happens to most people in get shiny object syndrome and then never make any progress anywhere, right? So that that ability to get into a new aspect or a new new realm of commercial real estate is is kind of a meta skill that I think would be interesting to dig into. So, you know, do you have any thoughts about you know paths to get into different types of, you know, a new type of commercial real estate for somebody who's considering just kind of getting started in a particular area? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I spent the last uh, one third of my new book on seven paths to getting involved in commercial real estate. And the reason I did this is that I had proposed a book to Bigger Pockets years ago called The Seven Paths to Commercial Real Estate Success or something like that. And um, they turned it down. I'm not bitter, but they they did let me sneak it into the last third of this book, which was basically seven paths to uh, get involved in any kind of commercial real estate, whether it's multifamily or self-storage, mobile home parks, cell towers, industrial, retail, hotels. And so, um, yeah, I can hit a few of those paths right now. In fact, I'll just do a quick overview of the seven paths and you tell me if you want to take a deeper dive. How about that? Sure. So the first way would be the long and winding staircase, which would mean you basically get a small asset, you improve it, you rent it out at a higher level, then you sell it, and you take those proceeds and buy a bigger asset and just keep going up the stairs. I know this works. I also know it's a long, hard road to the top. Second path would be a risky path, and that would be being a capital raiser. If you've got connections to people or money or great social media or online marketing skills, you can be a capital raiser. The risk, of course, is the SEC is watching to make sure we all do everything right. So check out those risks and be really careful if you're going to take this path. You really 
need to be either a co-GP or a broker dealer unless you just want to take a flat fee. A third possible path would be being a deal finder. Now, a deal finder is somebody who acts sort of like a commercial broker, but they basically don't want to get a commission. They want to stay involved in the deal. And so this could be look like, you know, you've got great connection skills. You can drive around. You can, you know, knock on a lot of doors. You can send a lot of postcards and you can try to connect deals to investment firms or syndicators that need deals so desperately. And you stay involved, you get a piece of the ownership and make yourself really useful. Eventually, maybe you'll get a partnership in the company. A next path, the path number four would be go big. If you retired from the NFL, made a lot of money (laughs) on the lottery or Bitcoin, or you have family money you inherited and you wanted to start out at a big level, you can do it. Just get a really, really good team around you and listen carefully to them. The fifth path is get a job. Now, most people listen to your podcast because they want to get out of their job. But getting a job might look like becoming a commercial real estate broker or a self-storage broker or a multifamily broker. Or it might be looking like uh, you know getting a job at a lender for commercial real estate or an asset management job. Or, uh, you know, it could be a property manager job. I know a guy who took a 50% pay cut to basically become a self-storage property manager so he could learn the business from the inside out. So this definitely could work, but it's a long path as well. Path number six is taking the passive path. You and I interact sometimes on BiggerPockets forums about this. A lot of investors who try to do it on the side in their spare time, really have a really hard time making uh, a go of it. And they end up being a mom and pop investor or syndicator. And uh, so some of the best path, one of the best paths for many people is to find a great syndicator and invest heavily with them after doing due diligence, of course. The seventh path is one that I really like, and I've done a number of times, and that's finding an unpaid mentor or a paid coach. A mentor might be somebody who would actually allow you to tag along with them on projects and meetings and learn the business while you do something for them. Maybe you could uh, do social media, online posting, paid ads online. Uh, Maybe you could do Excel analysis for them. And maybe you could actually be a deal finder for them and end up getting a piece of the ownership on that. One of the benefits of a paid coach also, as you and I both know, is we can sometimes partner with the paid coach. We can go back to path number two and be a capital raiser for that deal, you know, for that coach and really get a legitimate partnership going with them or better yet, be a deal finder with that coach and raise money. And then eventually, you know, hey, we're spun off on our own with our own track record. So those are the seven paths to potentially entering I would say self-storage or any commercial real estate business. Okay, so great. And I think one of the overarching themes in those are, or I would I would maybe even rank those into two separate categories is there's one category of basically building a business or, or really committing hard and, and kind of getting away from, from what you were doing. And I don't want to say... St- getting a job but like starting a new business and then there's there's the passive investing route and and I think at a you know at a maybe a, a first step is a lot of people have to make that initial decision of 
am I going to be active? Am I going to invest a lot of time in this business? Or am I going to you know, focus on what I do and for my for my job and really make my money there and just look to build wealth through real estate more passively? Would you uh, agree with that characterization or, or what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think a lot of people who are focused on their job, their career, or their family and career, or their retirement and their family, uh, a lot of them really, honestly, they get over their heads on these deals. I can't tell you how many investors I've talked to who actually are trying to do deals on the side, like the oral surgeon I talked to in the Pacific Northwest. He was telling me about his 20-unit portfolio. He's buying 20 pretty nice houses to rent out to replace his income and retire. Then he sighed and he said, yeah, I've got to talk to painters between surgeries. I've got to screen tenants in the evening. I barely have time to do this. And then he said, and I'm only on my third house. And I was like, man, you know, and he said, you know, that's why I called you. I'm interested in passively investing. And so I think it'd be really, I mean, honestly, I think it's great if you can be obsessively good and have the so-called chance to be the so-called best in the world at this, or you should find somebody who is an expert and invest with them. Yeah. That case in particular, I mean, I've spoken with a lot of people who are, who are in a similar position and it can be tough initially to give up some of that control or really have confidence that you're finding the right person uh, or right. company to to passively invest with. That's scary. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Especially really for true. smart people well, like surgeons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Our friend Brian Burke, of course, wrote a great book, The Hands-Off Investor, and he gives 300 pages of how to vet operators and how to vet deals. And that can really accelerate someone's opportunity, you know, an LP investor's opportunity in, you know, figuring out who to invest with. Nice. So, you know, before we head on to the the final part of the show, do you have any, you know, parting thoughts about the future of self-storage investing? You mentioned earlier uh, that that cap rates are have compressed, you know, basically for uh, over the last decade. Who knows where we're going to go from here? We're just hopefully, hopefully cross our fingers, maybe nearing the end of the coronavirus pandemic. You know, the future is always uncertain. But what are your thoughts moving forward in self-storage? You know, there's been some threats to self-storage as a business. Like, you know, some of the, what's it called? The pack rat thing where they come out and they pack your stuff and they put it in storage and they have a, maybe a kiosk where you can get your stuff out through automation, conveyor belts, et cetera. And, you know, it's hard to say what the future of self-storage is, but I can say that right now, you know, I can take you to Nashville and show you why it's, completely overbuilt, but I can take you to Belmont or Bellevue south of Nashville and show you why it's actually undersupplied. And so there are pockets, I mean, lots of pockets that are heavily overbuilt. But I mean, if you look where the population's going, you don't get into much of an overbuilt situation. This is a great place to invest for now. As far as predicting any more than that, I don't really know if I can. Interesting. Well, I certainly appreciate your your conservative uh, viewpoint on this, and not making any you know lofty and 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 somewhat ridiculous uh, predictions like some people like to make about their their pet asset class, uh, if you will, love it. Right now, we're right. going to take a quick break for our sponsor. 
Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called ground floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor, or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Paul, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. These questions, I don't think they existed. You were the first interview on the show. So it's been what, four years. So yeah, we're getting to it. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? The best investment I ever made was perhaps a mobile home park in Louisville, Kentucky, in fact. And this mobile home park was acquired uh, the week COVID went mainstream when the stock market started its 33% slide, February 20th or so, 2020. It was acquired for 7.1 million. It had four or five major upgrades. The owner had not visited the park in years. The person running the park was doing fine, but was overpaid. The expenses were bloated. They were actually paying for all the water and sewer for all 300 or so tenants. There were 50 vacant slots, you know, for mobile homes, lots of potential upside. Oh, including the fact that their rents were 25 or 35% below the market. Mobile home parks for a different reason than self-storage are quite sticky. People usually don't leave. The average stay at a mobile home park is like 13 or 14 years and they're a 90 five to 98% chance that a mobile home, once it's placed in a park, never leaves that spot. So to bottom line this, if that's still possible, <laughs> uh, this uh, property, a lot of the upgrades were done quickly. And then right in the middle of some of the worst months of COVID in August, six months later of 2020, the operator got an offer. He acquired it for 7.1 million. That was half debt, half equity. He got an offer and accepted it for $15 million. And so the uh, IRR, which is easy to manipulate, I, mm-hmm. I get it, by a quick sale. But the IRR on the equity was 347%. Goodness gracious. Well, yeah, IRR as a metric is is pretty you know tricky. And in, and in what I do, we're not even allowed to, to state IRR by regulations. But I think equity multiple is very useful as well. And certainly that was high in that case. So probably all the metrics looked pretty good. Yeah, right. 
Nice. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Taylor, I got a podcast called How to Lose Money. Ah, it's a great and show. So yeah, thank you. So you know I have a few of those. One that comes to mind is in 2006 or seven, we could see a lot of signs on the wall, you know, the handwriting on the wall, I should say, that the real estate market was about to crack. Well, I bought one more waterfront lot, an expensive waterfront lot at Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia with the thought of reselling it for a profit. I got several people telling me it was a bad deal, but I charged ahead and I ended up losing a couple hundred thousand dollars over 12 years it took me to finally resell that lot for a deep discount about around 2019 and so i think that was my worst wow wow and i wonder have you looked at what if you'd held it to today i mean real estate in virginia has gone crazy i don't know about smith mountain lake though yeah it has gone way up and i think if i would have held it two more years i would have made i might have only lost 150,000 rather than 200 and some <laughs> But um, yeah, I, it was just a, a bad investment. And the good news is I reinvested that in the same group that did that Louisville mobile home part. And uh, honestly, I have made a lot of money on that, the principle that I ended up getting back from the sale of that lot. I've actually gained a lot since then. I think I gained almost as much, if not more than, not that I lost, because that's going to take years to make up. But I think I gained more than I could have ever uh, by sitting on that lot. Wow. Wow. Interesting. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Oh, by far. It's the difference between investing and speculating. When I sold my company in 1997, I started a nonprofit organization, but I also had some cash and I thought, I'm an investor now. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I wasn't an investor. I was a speculator. I didn't know the difference. And so in so many ways, I did not know the difference. And I'll tell you that, you know, speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. But investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. Warren Buffett taught me the difference and I'm so glad he did. And I recommend that people, you know, speculate if you want, go buy some Bitcoin, et cetera, but don't expect that that will be the basis of your wealth creation. Most wealth is created through very boring investments over a long period of time. Nice. Well, Paul, it's been great talking with you. Uh, once again, having you back on the show. And I look forward to hopefully see you in person at some kind of real estate event here uh, this year or in the future. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? You know, over the years, I really wondered how to get involved in commercial real estate, like I said. So I wrote a guide for that and people can get it free by going to my website. It's Wellings Capital. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com. And they can put in forward slash resources to get special reports on self-storage, on mobile home park investing, and that commercial real estate special report. Awesome. Well, 
Thank you once again for joining us today. And to everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.